Welcome back for another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. This is your host, Chris Graves. I am here with Samantha Watt. You, you, hi, Samantha. Samantha's never done this before, so this is going to be a fun ride. Uh, Samantha's here to talk to us about... I thought I'd get like a cool introduction, like Samantha Watt, expert, blah, 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 beautiful, fantastic. And Samantha's here to talk about dead people and death and morbid shit. We're here to talk about the funeral industry. Uh, like I said, death loss, grief, all that fun, happy horse shit. Samantha is, I know, Samantha is a, a funeral director. She's been I'm not in it. I need to specify that I'm not currently licensed as a funeral director. Samantha has years of experience <laughs> as a funeral director. She's uh, already taken this off the rails a minute and 10 seconds into the episode. That's fantastic. Buckle in, guys. Yeah, great. Um, the reason I wanted to have Samantha on is one, it's a topic people are uncomfortable talking about. So that's already kind of up my alley in my wheelhouse, but also I've, I've known Samantha for <sighs> a, a decade or so. Mm -hmm. And I've always found, um, her work in the, the funeral industry fascinating. And as long as I've known you, I've been asking weird questions. So it mm -hmm. seemed, seemed like a good fit to sit down and kind of go through those questions tonight. Very curious to see what you have to ask me. Yeah, this is this is great. So first up, I guess let's just start with your experience in the funeral world. What have you done and what training did you go through to, to get where you got? Sure. So if you want to become a funeral director, um, you do have schooling. And I got licensed and went to school in the state of Texas. Each state's going to have its own licensing requirements. But in the state of Texas, you are responsible for getting an associate's degree in applied science for funeral service. There are two schools that I know of. There's probably more. And then there's online colleges you can go to. I went to Dallas Institute of Funeral Service in Dallas, Texas. Did a 18... 18 month course that got me my associates and during that time it was an obligation to get you have to get provisional licenses so that you can do an internship of sorts we call it an apprenticeship in funeral service and the apprenticeship involves there's different requirements and it changes regularly so when I did it you have to do 60 cases related to embalming 60 cases related to uh, funeral service, which is more the administration, the fulfilling the funeral service itself, so conducting the funeral service, and kind of everything in between. So administration would be filing death certificates, working with the funeral directors to um, create the arrangement paperwork for the family and meet with them, you know, on their first appointment with the funeral home. So you kind of follow all those uh, procedures and get those obligations completed. And you can do that while you're in school. So when you graduate, the last thing you have to do is to complete um, your national board exam. And the national board exam is 150 questions related to science for your embalming license and 150 questions related to funeral service and management and administration for your funeral directing license. So you know how to embalm somebody? I do know how to embalm someone. 
during college, we had embalming requirements to graduate college. We had to do, I believe, 12 cases directly related to embalming. So you have to go to funeral homes or mortuary services, which are, you know, non-consumer friendly um, businesses that do kind of business to business work for funeral home embalming. Um, and you would work with them with the school to meet that uh, fulfillment. Um, so I think I did 12 embalming cases. When you say embalming cases, you embalm mm -hmm. 12 bodies. Right. So usually, depending on the number of people that were there, because we had a lot of students in Dallas, particularly because it's Dallas Institute of Funeral Services, the biggest, one of the biggest funeral schools in the nation, um, you could have upwards of like six students working with someone on one person, one, one deceased person to all get that requirement fulfilled for doing a part of that. Embalming. So you, you helped embalm. Yeah, I would people. say in college, I helped embalm. I did not embalm people myself. Um, and during that time and doing those 12 embalmings during college, that's when I realized embalming wasn't what I wanted to do or pursue and actually ended up not getting my full 60 cases for the embalming requirements. So I never got my embalming license. I only had a provisional and I, I really fell in love with the administration and the event planning of the funeral business. So I just stuck with my funeral director license. Um, and you can do that in big cities, metropolitan areas because you don't have to um, do both. Like a small town, you might be on call, kind of wearing all the hats and performing everything, embalming you know, the same person that you just answered the phone for their family and then meeting the family in the morning for the arrangements, you do it all. But in Dallas, I was fortunate. The funeral homes I worked at never required me to work in a prep room. Okay, so what is it? You're in high school. What a lot of people are like, I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be a doctor. What is it in, what is it with you that made you decide I want to deal with dead people? Well, it all started when I saw the crow. No, I'm kidding. I was just a goth kid in high school, but, and that's kind of my, my short answer these days is I was just a weird kid because no one really presses it much further. But when I was really starting to go to, to college and really pursuing it, it was kind of a weird thing. And I got that question a lot. And I would say, you know, when I really thought about it, I drove by a funeral home a lot. It was on the main drag of town and I was always curious about cemeteries and funeral homes and just kind of, I always kind of had a morbid curiosity. But more than that, when I was in high school, I started taking psychology and I was always um, pretty affluent in, in art um, and had a good knowledge of art. And, and then I also started taking an anatomy and physiology course. And when I was thinking about college, I started thinking, oh, I would love to go into the psychology field. And I wasn't necessarily a big proponent or didn't have a big interest in doing a four-year college. So at the time, everything just kind of meshed together. And I don't know when it was or when the perfect moment was, but anatomy and art and, and psychology and my interests and the, the short schooling, all of it kind of just made sense um, and kind of funeral directing was all of that in one package. You get to kind of use all those strengths and interests and you also had a short schooling with pretty much a guaranteed career coming out of it. So it seemed like a good path. Uh, I don't know what it's called, but I, I guess that's the question. What is the making up of the body and making the body presentable for an open casket, what is that called? It, does it have a name? 
Well, there's there's several steps to that process, right? So you're going to have to pick up the person, assess, assess their condition, but you're always going to have, if there's an open casket, you're always going to, I don't want to say always, but you're, you're usually going to have embalming prepared and that's, you know, its own process. But um, after, after embalming. Dressing and casketing. Yeah. Um, it, that's usually what we call it. It's like DNC dressing and casketing, um, and makeup and cosmetics or cosmetics and uh, hair. Is that a specific position skill or is that something you did as well? No, what's interesting is a lot of people, <laughs> I'll meet a lot of like, YouTube makeup artists and people that are just like fascinated by making people look pretty and they're like oh you're a funeral director that'd be really really cool if I could just like come and do people's hair and makeup for you and what they don't understand and what people that have that interest in in cosmetics don't understand that it doesn't translate to deceased people for one you're lying in a, in a sleeping position so the makeup's just totally different from an eyeshadow perspective where you're going to lay the, sh the shading you have to think about the lights above the deceased that type of thing but also our skin composition is very different. Um, it's gonna be dry and, and a lot of the products that you use in funeral service are nothing like the products you have on your, your counter. That so came you're from not Sephora. throwing Mary Kay on a dead person? Mary Kay is not really a, a timely reference, I wouldn't say. I'd say Sephora would be a better reference. But yeah, you're not throwing your Sephora or your Mary Kay on the deceased, most likely. Did you, do ever, <gasps> did you ever do that? Um, so, so the other part to that, that, um, you know, the makeup artists that think they want to do work on deceased, just freelance is that the embalmers usually do that. When you're going to school for funeral service for embalming, restorative artwork, you know, being able to recreate facial structures, like your nose and your ears and your eyeballs from wax, that's part of it. Um, and the makeup is part of that. You have a makeup basically class in college where you learn how to apply makeup to the deceased. So Nine times out of 10, 9.5 times out of 10, the, the embalmer's doing that as part of their general prep work in the, in the back room. But um, there were a lot of times, because I was working at smaller firms, where we had like a main prep room for our, our company, and it wasn't necessarily at my location. So they might bring over a deceased to my location, and there might be times where I would, um, I wouldn't do all of it, but usually touch up makeup, touch up hair. You definitely had to be capable to do that. Have you, did you ever have instances where a family member looked at the open casket and said, no, this won't work. You got to send it back and do it again or <laughs> do better. Um, fortunately that wasn't my role to take care of, but absolutely. <laughs> um, like it was never my fault. It was never like I didn't present the body correctly or whatever, but. But is that a request family members make? <sighs> It's very common. Really? It's extremely common. I mean, embalmers and, and people that do restorative artwork are, are doing a really, really difficult job. I mean, a lot of times families will bring in a very unrealistic expectation to what the person's going to look like. Um, you know, people, when they've, they've passed away, they, they go through a lot of different, um, you know, unfortunate processes like bloating and, um, or, or dehydration and, and different things that can make their skin different um, than when they were alive. Um, you know, being in hospitals for a long time, a lot of people have bruising, a lot of people have a lot of different things that you can't account for um, when you hand a photo that's, you know, from the 90s from a glamour shots and then trying to recreate that in a casket. It's a really hard thing and you just have to make sure you set those expectations. Um, so yeah, if, if a family's unhappy, 
um, I'll call out, you know, the embalmer to, to come and meet with them and, and see if there's anything we can do to, to make them make them more comfortable with how they look. Um, but it's also about setting that expectation that the person has passed away and, you know, there's just not, you know, they're not, they're not magicians. Right. Have you had instances or heard of instances where they wanted an open casket, they see the, the final result and they decide after the fact, you know what, we're going to go close casket. I just don't like it. Does that happen? Yeah, I'd say it's rare. Um, the ability that embalmers have to, and the tools and the tricks of the trade that we have, there's some astounding things that these people can do to, to make deceased look as presentable as possible, no matter what the circumstance. Um, you know, I've, I've heard of in, in college, we had textbooks that would show burn victims before and after and you know, just remarkable embalming cases that, you know, our professors were like, this is what, this is what it looked like. And this is what it looks like now. And, and there's just amazing things you can do, but it's not common. Usually if it's something really extreme, like a drowning or a burn victim or, or something like that, where there's just extreme trauma to the deceased, we just recommend, you know, set that expectation and recommend that they just don't have an open casket. Um, it's usually no matter how good you can restore that person with cosmetics, it's usually not going to be a memory picture that the family's expecting. It's just hard to do. Right. So moving on, one of the, the things that interested me mm -hmm. in, in your career is you've handled the funerals for a wide variety of ethnicities and cultures mm. and belief systems. Um, I want to dig into that a little bit, but I guess just first off your, your personal opinion on who had the most unique or interesting mm -hmm. funeral traditions, or is there a certain culture mm. that came in and you go, you know what? I enjoy is probably not the best word, but those are always neat services to do. Is there a culture that's that much more different or unique oh, or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm instantly thinking of two two situations, and they both had a Buddhist influence. So Asian cultures, and particularly Buddhist religion, you see some really interesting traditional kind of, um, what's the word, kind of just acts and, and, and different, what am I trying to say? Okay, whatever. Um, damn it, what's the word I'm trying to say, Chris? I don't know. Hmm. You're going to add this out, right? Nope. Hey. People are going to watch you hang. <laughs> no, please. No, I have to have the word. I'm going to say customs. Okay. So, so. People love dead air. No, edit this. So. When you ask that question, immediately what comes to mind is Buddhist traditions. So one of the last funeral homes I worked at, they have a really, really high Asian uh, population nearby, and we serve a lot of the Buddhist community. Um, they come in and they have um, these just beautiful customs and traditions that they, um, you know, have food offerings and and um, incense and different chants they perform. And it's always very structured. They, they spend a lot of time with the deceased. Um, 
Another thing that particularly sticks out with Asian cultures that we don't see in, you know, Western, Western cultures and what you and our families would experience just as Caucasian Americans is, is taking pictures with the deceased and spending a lot of time in the room with the deceased. Like, I don't know about your family, but I can assume in my family, we, we stay near that deceased person as little as possible. And it's mostly about just putting on airs in front of our friends. That's kind of what funerals are to a lot of people like us. Um, but I think it's really moving that a lot of cultures will spend so much time with the deceased. Like they're just still there with you, but, um, you know, you're honoring them by giving them time and, and grieving over them in a really real way. So I love that. But one, one funeral that particularly sticks out in my mind was one that was kind of a mix of a lot of cultures and it wasn't necessarily one religion. They just kind of tried to implement a lot of different, um, cultural customs in their, their service. And it was actually the very first funeral ever held at the Thanksgiving chapel in Thanksgiving square. Are you familiar with it? The one downtown uh, Dallas with I the am. big stained glass spiral. Yeah, so for gorgeous. people listening, not in Dallas, Thanksgiving Square. Yeah, it's it's kind of a big, um, like I guess we would call it a park, for lack of a better word. But there's a chapel that is shaped effectively like a seashell. Mm-hmm. And if you look up, the spiral of the shell shape is all different stained, colored stained glass windows. It's It's a really neat building. Yeah, it, it feels really spiritual when you go in there. And I'm, I'm not religious myself, but but definitely it gives you a moment of calm and peace in, in a bustling city. And the family that I was working for was really, really spiritual, very um, very in tune with their beliefs, very, very much wanting to respect the deceased and honor that person. Um, and this, this family was Caucasian, but they were, you know, really trying to embrace West, um, Eastern cultures. Um, so we, we rented the space at that chapel and it was the first time anyone had ever had a, a funeral there. Um, it was actually kind of a, an elaborate logistical nightmare because in order to get up to the, with, with the casket up to the actual chapel, you have to go around a big spiral and first you have to park your hearse downtown on like a main busy street that doesn't have, you know, hearse parking. And then you're moving a casket down the city sidewalk up a crazy spiral um incline and then um and then presenting him kind of in the narthex if you will of the the chapel and uh it it was the most beautiful service i I can think of that i've been to because there was beautiful music and chanting and it was a a small intimate ceremony in such a beautiful place Um, and the best part about that is that the family really made it their own and that's that's really what every funeral that stood out to me has been something where the family um, didn't just follow a, a specific religious tradition and and uh, focused more on the deceased and really celebrating their life in a special way. That kind of leads me into my next couple questions. I kind of want to get into some of the highs and lows. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of them are lows, but I feel like there's different ways to remember and celebrate life rather than just mourning. But... Mm-hmm. Um, I know, for for example, I I think of my mom. My mom told me years ago, when I die, I don't want everybody sad wearing black. I want people in colors. I want music. I want want a party. Mm -hmm. I want to celebrate my life rather than everybody be sad that I'm gone. I want them to celebrate the time they had with me. Do you, did you have many 
funerals that were more celebrate not just celebrating a life. I feel like that's almost a cliche at this point. But did you actually have more party and party's probably not the right word, but party esque, more upbeat, lively funerals? Absolutely. I wouldn't say it's the norm yet. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more of you know, quote unquote, celebration of life's. Um, and that's what they, they typically refer to those as. Do people ever bring booze? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the Irish always bring booze, even if it's like a traditional funeral. But but celebration of life, you know, the family might have champagne and, you know, different type of cocktail hour type things. But I don't think we're going to see that as a huge trend um, until we have the the baby boomers start to have more funerals. Unfortunately, I didn't have to work for a lot of baby boomers because at that time they would be in their fifties and sixties. Um, and that's, you know, your, your mom and my mom, that's their age range. And my mom says the same thing. I, I want Jeremiah was a bullfrog, you know, <laughs> play three dog night at her funeral. Um, and they, they want it to be a celebration of life because they've seen their parents funerals and how, boring and not just boring, but just like unfulfilling that is when you, when you've loved someone for so, so long and then your only real goodbye to them is in a very kind of sterile, somber, sterile, structured, kind of regimented environment for an hour or two. It doesn't feel appropriate for the life that was lived. Right. You know, have you, so as a funeral director, heaven forbid, my family member dies, I come to you. Mm-hmm. You're effectively the the funeral funeral director, but the coordinator. You're the one making everything happen. Mm-hmm. Is there a set routine, a set schedule that is kind of like a template that you <laughs> kind of go off of and people kind of fill in the rest that you guys, like a playbook that you work off of is... Is that kind of how it works? (laughs) Yeah, that little funeral playbook. I just pull it out of my desk and I just say, okay, you're standing there, you're standing there, you know. You say that, I kind of imagine it being exactly like that. So there literally is. I mean. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So when you're talking about just like a a traditional 70, 80, 90 year old person in America that passes away, you know, that the visitation, you know, let's assume it's super traditional. There's going to be a visitation day, you know, day two or three after the funeral arrangements have been made, it's probably going to be two hours long, probably from six to eight on a weeknight. And then you're probably going to have a funeral for an hour or two, hopefully on a Friday or Saturday so people can get off work. And usually everyone's main concern is, is everyone going to be able to get off work by, by six o'clock so they can come to visitation and, and, oh, you know, Aunt Sally can't get into town on Friday, but she could get into town on, on Saturday. So we do direct the families and that kind of experience that we've had with other families saying, Oh, well we want to make sure everyone gets there. Is it also, but so as I see it, I could see it going one of two ways. Yeah. You're kind of the, this is how it goes. And then you're kind of helping fill in the gaps and, and make it all happen. Mm -hmm. But are there people that come to you or have come to you and it's, fuck the tradition, fuck all this. I want this and, and just kind of take charge and you make all of that happen. We're. Yeah, absolutely. Funeral directors are super flexible and accommodating. Like we're happy, um, happy to help. But the, 
and, and that's the best type of service for us. It's the most interesting for us as people that are working. Um, it's really monotonous if your every day is six to eight visitation, 3 p.m. funeral service, followed by burial. It's just, it's becomes robotic and formulaic. But when those, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? So yeah, you're really used to your, you know, quote unquote playbook and how it typically goes. So you're prepared for those. And you know, you know, it's going to be this and this, and you know what time you'll be able to get out for dinner that day. But the other ones are much more fun. And, and, and it really makes you, it kind of makes your experience and your, you know, all the time that you've spent doing these things and all the thoughts you've had of how this could have gone better or more interesting. It lets you really, that it really lets you make those moments shine. Um, it's like, oh my gosh, I really wanted to do that for this person, but now, um, now I can finally use that idea I had, you know, and help this person. What are some of the weirder requests that you've gotten? And I also want to hear about some of the, the request you've had to shoot down and you're like, it just can't work that way or it doesn't work that way. <laughs> um, I can think of one that I had to shoot down, unfortunately. Let me think of anything I've gotten. Well, what's really the one weird. you shot down? Oh man. So, so very unfortunate. This was a baby boomer. Um, that was on a motorcycle um, group and, and he had a lot of tattoos and his, his good friends were all coming to the arrangements and the, the best friend, he and I really, really bonded and had a really good, good time together over those days and just kind of got to know each other and we kind of clicked. But the, um, sorry, the, the request that he had that I couldn't fulfill was to have his tattoos Oh, I thought you were trying to tell me about something. Um, to have his tattoos removed and um, what do they call that when they do it to deer? Like dry, oh, like dry mounted, out. like taxidermied. I forget. There's a word for it, but I, they wanted to have his tattoos removed and yeah, basically preserved. And that wasn't something the firm I was working for was comfortable um, facilitating or even trying to learn how to facilitate. Um, if I could do that all over again, if <laughs> what a weird thing to say, I would have really, really pushed harder to get that accomplished because I've seen it more actually. That was, you know, six, seven years ago. I've seen it on Facebook, like viral things going around because I follow a lot of death communities, of course. And <laughs> hashtag goth girl. Um, but yeah, I've seen people do that since then. And I'm like, damn, I really wish I could have could have helped them out, you know, because you can't re you can't re fix, you can't do it now. Right. Um, that also happened with gold teeth a lot. People, people always assume that you can just, the funeral director will just go in and just whack out the gold teeth and give them to the family. That's not the case. Um, a lot of things don't fall under the funeral director, like code of ethics or the embalmer code of ethics. And that's one of them. We don't, um, any facility I've worked at, remove any gold fillings from people's teeth. We consider that mutilation. We're not dentists. We don't know how to do that properly. If we did it, we're literally just like wrecking the teeth, right? With some kind of tool that we'll figure out. So you actually have to kind of hire a, some kind of rogue dentist that will do that. And usually they charge enough of a fee that it's not even worth the, the time and the effort for the amount of gold you'll receive back. So you've gotten that request? Many times. Yeah. What are some other weird requests you've gotten that you've either been able to fill or not? I mean, I, I hesitate to say anything's weird in the funeral world because I don't want to say anyone's 
desire or or what they need to grieve. Well, then we'll is, be PC and call it unique. Oh, yeah, just not not the norm, right? Um, <clears throat> so I definitely, when you're doing the cremation paperwork, for instance, you you have to ask the family if there's any pacemaker, because a pacemaker will explode in, in a crematory, by the way. Um, and you have to ask them if they want any of the metal back that's in a body. So you always ask, is there pacemakers any metal? And then you say, do you want that stuff back? And... You know, nine, 99 times out of 100, they're going to say, no, I, why would I want mom's steel rod in her backpack? Um, and, but, but the one time I did get it, uh, the couple of times I got it, oh, I want to, I want to um, melt this down and make it into a piece of jewelry or I want to whatever. But one family, they wanted like the full hip replacement because they wanted to make wind chimes. Yeah. No, I mean, why do you say, oh, why, like, what, what is that reaction? You know, I think it's just a beautiful thing to... To have a piece, literal piece of someone that you loved and to make it into something beautiful and makes a beautiful sound and reminds you of them. Well, my my first thought was just imagining a hip hanging off somebody's back porch. My second thought was acoustically that doesn't sound like it'd be a very satisfying wind chime. I don't know how they ended up making the wind chime, Chris, but I thought it was a lovely idea and a way to honor their loved one. And have a piece of them that otherwise would have been recycled, um, you know, ended up somewhere where they never heard from it again. You got into something I wanted to, to dig into a little bit. You mentioned uh, cremation. And as I understand it, and you mm-hmm. can tell me if I'm horribly misinformed. Probably. But, uh, I know. But my understanding is the trend is towards cremation over <laughs> traditional burials. Is that? Is that a question? Is that true? Is that? <laughs> it's it's definitely more talked about. So cremation has been around for a long time, but it really um, boomed, so to speak, in the 80s when a lot of people, this is during the AIDS crisis, when a lot of people didn't understand how to care for bodies infected with AIDS, HIV. So so people wouldn't touch these bodies, hospitals wouldn't touch them, and and basically cremation was the preferred method of disposition. Um, it started becoming more stream, mainstream beyond that, but the Catholic Church still didn't approve, still really doesn't approve of cremation. So you'll often find... You'll often find... I'm sorry for the dog interrupting <laughs> this fascinating talk about cremation. Somebody <laughs> needs to cremate that fucking dog. Oh my gosh, poor puppy. Um, but the the Catholic Church doesn't always been a big fan. I would have I would run into a lot of uh, priests, even in Dallas, Texas, that that wouldn't or would really counsel the family basically before allowing a cremation. Um, and then a lot of families that choose cremation really prefer to to spread ashes. That's a very common thing, right? So. Um, the Catholic Church doesn't like the spreading of ashes. They want the whole body together in one, and they want it in one place. And usually that almost always requires it to be in a niche or in the ground. Um, so the urn's always together, not just on a mantle somewhere. But to answer your question, I would say about 50, like Dallas is about 50%, 50-50 cremation burial, and it's probably the same for does, America. Does the rise in that prevalence <laughs> cut into a funeral home's profit margins? <laughs> So profits kind of a touchy subject for funeral homes, right? So I guess that let's go into that. <laughs> let's go into that. They get kind of a bad rap. But yes. What? 
how does a funeral home make its money? Where, where, where's the lucrative mm-hmm. high margin choices, decisions, uh, so just like traditions. Any, so like any business, I mean, funeral homes are, are, are businesses and they exist to make a profit. Um, we like to think that funeral directors on, you know, a huge hole are, are here to help serve the communities that they live in and work in. And they really want to make a difference in someone's life that, that is going through a grieving time. And that's how I was. And that's how I think anyone that I really encountered was. I never met anyone. I won't say never, but I didn't run into a lot of people that were out for money or out for sales or out for profit. The structure of funeral homes can be very, very different. Families definitely have low cost options and families definitely have high cost options. And usually the main differences there are going to be the, the facilities. Um, so the overhead of the facilities that you're visiting, um, whether that be a storefront in a strip mall or a, a huge facility that has room for services for 200, 300 people. They have lobbies, they have, you know, catering rooms. There's just a big difference in facilities or big difference in, in funeral fleet. Um, and it's just like any service. It's like the difference between going to a Nordstrom's and a Target, um, you know, just a luxury value um, service versus a, um, a more moderate service. What? So you kind of quietly hinted that... <sighs> Cremations are not as a big of a profit margin as uh, casket in a, the whole nine yards. It's absolutely not. Um, absolutely not. Um, I would compare a cremation to a funeral easily anywhere probably a thousand dollars for a thousand to five thousand for a cremation. And if you don't have burial property in your family, you're probably looking at a minimum ten thousand dollars to. 20, I've seen $30,000 funerals in my time. What's the most expensive funeral you've ever I've seen, seen $30,000 funerals. The most expensive one that I um, curated, conducted was about 19000 What goes, uh, is it the casket? Is it the flower? What goes into a $30,000 versus a $20,000 funeral? So, so when you're thinking about this, think... <laughs> I like to describe to people that my, my job when I was a funeral director was event planning for the bereaved. And I, I akin myself to a wedding planner and anything that you would do at a wedding that you would put money into at a wedding, you can see people put money into at a funeral. Some people are very, very into, um, their communities and, um, you know, they're very high society and they want to put on a big elaborate production, just like a wedding. And so the $30,000 funeral is going to be definitely more expensive merchandise. Um, you're probably going to have a, a mahogany casket versus a pine wood box. Um, those are going to be big expenses and differences, but, but beyond that, just beyond the obvious, you have things like tent rentals because maybe the chapel's not big enough and you want to have people standing outside. Maybe you want to have television feeds to the outside for people to be able to watch it. Maybe you want to have dove releases or you want to rent a, 
a hearse-driven cask, uh, a horse-driven hearse, excuse me, um, to go through the cemetery. Maybe you want to get a plot of land near a river versus a or a little creek versus um, you know the local transit train that drives by the back of the cemetery you know it's all about those different types of of little touches um, that add up very quickly when you're talking about um, real estate and cemeteries for sure but just all the different things combined of like getting bagpipers and tents and and tables and chairs and renting just rental prices are pretty extravagant sometimes I don't know. Is there a, a code of secrecy around funeral? Like if a, a celebrity shows up at a funeral, not as the deceased, but a, a celebrity <laughs> shows up at the funeral, are you prohibited from talking? Is there any kind of... I would Like say a that... doctor has the HIPAA oath. Is there anything similar in the cemetery or the funeral world? There's nothing like HIPAA. No, that was um, my long way of asking. Have any cool celebrities shown up at any of your funerals? <laughs> um, have any cool celebrities shown up at my funerals? No, I wouldn't say so. I've definitely, you know, no one that your listeners would would know or recognize. But there's definitely some Dallas um, affluent, very um, influential people in Dallas society that I've I've cremated or, or met through the services. Um, you know, people get cremated and get buried in the cities that they live in. So if you have affluent people like a Mark Cuban or a Jerry Jones or any of those types of people, you're going to see them at a funeral one day um, just because they know everybody. And that's part of being a good society member is going when people have passed away. Okay, then. (laughs) Um, One of the other things that interests me about funerals personally, being a car guy is the hearse and the funeral procession. That's always mm-hmm. my favorite part of a funeral is the procession. I love that you have a favorite part of I the do. funeral. <laughs> it's the part, yeah, the part I'm looking forward to is it's not the viewing. I hate the viewing. Oh. The ceremonies often are pretty... I like it when bad. the military play taps yeah. at, at veteran funerals. That's I had that at my grandfather's. Moving. That was pretty neat. But what I wanted to ask about yeah. the... The hearse and the procession side of stuff is, you know, I've got a couple questions, but how is the the route? I mean, I guess it partly depends on the Mm. burial plot, Mm -hmm. but how much coordination goes into the traffic? (laughs) First off, is the traffic coordination and the guys in the motorcycles blocking traffic? Is that people you contract with? Are they employees of yours? Is that how does that? This is a work. good question, Chris. Very, very deep, high level here. Um, so typically, um, we yeah, we we always contract the motorcade. That's what they're called. And there's a couple of companies in Dallas that are used frequently. And they don't just do funeral motorcade motorcades. They'll they'll help if the president comes into town or celebrities from airport to the stadium or or whatever the vacation and, is. And are they actual? Law enforcement, are they like off-duty cops or are they people in fancy security outfits? To my knowledge, they're more like rent-a-cops situation. Yeah, they don't, I don't think they're formal police trained, no. Um, But they do have certifications that allow them to stop traffic and, um, you know, kind of control the flow of traffic. That's definitely a 
a dangerous thing that you have to have a license or a permit for that i assume yeah i don't know what their actual education is but yeah that's a very high uh very demanding job but i i know they must have a specialized training in and, and approval from the police department but usually what will happen is the motorcade will be two i mean you really want a minimum of three um motorcycles um if it's a long procession you might want more and what they'll do is they'll arrive to the facility so the church or the funeral home they'll arrive about an hour early before the service should be ending and they'll get with the funeral director and assess you know which first of all they're going to say which entrance are we going to go in at the cemetery because usually cemeteries have you know north south east southeast entrances and they want to make sure they direct them to the right entrance that makes sense for the funeral director so once that's accomplished they talk about what their route's going to be and let them know oh this has construction this has a lot of stoplights this has you know we don't want to go on the freeway if we don't have to um and they'll kind of you just assess that whole situation with the funeral director, make a plan. So the funeral director is following the same path. Um, God forbid anyone gets lost or something happens and one of the bikes doesn't get up ahead of the, of the coach fast enough. Um, by the way, we call hearses coaches in the business. Um, <laughs> but if the motorcycle didn't catch up, I mean, we definitely know the whole, the funeral director and the staff know which route we're taking. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's just a collaboration between the motorcade and the funeral director. Does the family ever get a say? Like, let's say I'm, we'll use Dallas as an example. I, when I die, I want my body going down 635. Or uh, do families ever custom? What a weird choice. Well, the, the reason I ask is during <laughs> South by Southwest a couple of years ago, uh-huh. um, I was working an event and in the, the peak South by traffic's already at a standstill. It had to have been a 200-car funeral procession comes right down Cesar Shop, like mm-hmm. one of the main streets in downtown Austin. And I can't help but assume there were other routes they could have taken, and they chose to go go this route. So have you? So I've never heard that request. No, I've never heard the family say. Or oh, families like I want to go drive by this landmark on the procession. I would never put it past someone to have made that request or for that request to happen. You know, later on in my career, but it's not something that I've personally experienced or something that I've ever heard of people experiencing. Um, it might just be that the cemetery was down the street and you know the funeral home was on the other side of the street. And I, just, know. I didn't know of shitty, any in that area, but... Shitty circumstance. Um, or they... You know, the motorcade is always pretty aware of traffic conditions and best routes. And their goal is always going to be to take the best, safest route for the family and the procession. So that might... I mean, it could just be that that might have been the safest one. Or maybe the person was just a big fucking music fan and wanted to drive through South by. Do, if somebody made that request, do you guys, would you guys go out of your way to honor it? I'm pretty sure funeral homes will do whatever you want for a fee. That's a very political answer. <laughs> um, as long as it's safe and it makes sense. Yeah. Have you done any police or firefighter funerals? Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, um, line of duty is, is going to be the most extravagant, but, um, definitely retired firefighters, police officers and everything in between. Yeah. Have you done line of duty funerals? Mm-hmm. I've experienced them. I haven't personally conducted, aside from a firefighter, um, it was a volunteer firefighter. Um, I did that funeral 
and I had the assistance of my funeral home because those funeral homes, it's or those funeral services, it's usually every man on deck for for those types. Right, of and that's what I wanted to to kind of know about is mm-hmm. I've I've witnessed I think one or two, but mm-hmm. it seems to be every like I saw a firefighters funeral procession, and it felt like every fire department, police department in 300 miles. I always out. make the joke that it's like the best day to commit a crime is on a police officer's funeral. Right. <laughs> like, like if you wanted to murder someone and get away with it, do it on a, on a day that a police officer is having a funeral. Uh, Cause yeah, everyone shows up and it's such a beautiful community experience. Um, and the same thing happens like behind doors at the arrangement, like from day one, when the, the death occurs, you're not talking to the family. You're talking to the police chief. You're you're not talking to the family until the day they come in to make arrangements. And then um, they're surrounded by the entire community. I think when I was working with the, the firefighters, it was probably 20, 30 people at my arrangement conference. And normally it's about two to five people or one to five people. It's very intimidating. So you're, you've got more people that kind of inputting during the the organizational process mm-hmm. are you, i assume on the back end the procession side you're also going through a lot more coordination with that because you're coordinating not just a bunch of families but mm-hmm. all these fire trucks all these well, what's motorcycles great, what's what's great is that the firefighters or the police officers have done this you know, it's not great. It's not the right word, but they know the logistics. They have it down. Um, they've experienced it before. So even if you're a funeral director that hasn't done it before, they will tell, basically tell you how it goes. There's very, um, very rigid customs when it comes to active duty firefighters and, um, you know, uh, service peoples. So they'll come in, they'll basically tell you, this is where we're going to be. This is what time we're going to show up. We're going to have 15 trucks. They're going to do this. They're going to have up their ladders on this street. And, and they just tell you how it's going to be basically, or we're going to load the casket onto the fire truck, or we're going to have it in the coach. Um, it's all kind of very by the book, um, with personal touches that the funeral director really comes in for the personal touches. Like, Oh, we're going to have this type of flower arrangement. We're going to have this type of, um, service program. We're going to have this type of casket. We help with those kind of decisions to make the funeral personalized. But when it comes to the procession and to the customs of the different uh, departments, it's always going to be pretty standard, but it's, it's very impactful and very traditional. And, and those are some of the best customs that really kind of stick out in people's minds because seeing that is such a, it's so impactful to see the, 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 the different service communities doing their thing and they do it so professionally and so clean. It's like military, you know, um, changing, changing gears <laughs> drastically. Okay. <laughs> Carrying the casket out. Have you ever seen somebody drop the casket? Have I seen someone drop the casket? No, thank goodness. I will say behind the behind closed doors, it doesn't happen at funerals when you don't usually see it at funerals because we have stuff in place to cover that, right? We have, we try to have six pallbearers minimum. We try to have that come from the family. 
Um, if the family doesn't have it, we have at least two or three people on the funeral from our staff. And then usually we have cemetery personnel to help us. So usually there's enough people that even if one person couldn't carry their load, someone else is carrying it. So no, I haven't seen it dropped. Um, there's been definitely been times in cemeteries where I have been wearing heels and stepped in mud and my shoe came off and it was like I almost fell down, but luckily I recovered from those situations and those types of things happen, but the casket's not going to get dropped in those situations because so many people are carrying the weight. Inside the funeral home, however, you know, when you're setting up a funeral or when the family's not there yet, you just have the people in the funeral home to do this by themselves, which is typically the funeral director and their assistant for the day. So it's two people doing the carrying and putting it. We have these things called church trucks and they're basically boxes on wheels um, or kind of accordion pull out things on wheels that hold the casket. And that's what you see the casket resting on at churches and in the chapels. And we, we do have to transfer the body or the casket from the back of a coach onto the church trucks or from the prep room onto the church trucks to get them into the funeral home chapel. And that's where it gets kind of dicey. Again, I've never dropped one. I've never seen one dropped, but they're very, very, very heavy. Like I can't stress how heavy a casket is. And when you have a, uh, um, a wooden, solid wood, solid wood casket or a very hairy, heavy metal casket, um, and then you <laughs> add the weight of a 300 pound dead person inside, it's extremely heavy and, um, had some close calls because it's not super easy to get them onto the church trucks all the time. In fact, one time I was pulling a casket out of the back of a van and I ended up pulling my back to the point where I had to go to the hospital that evening, um, had to leave work, back injury. I was out for several days, maybe weeks with a back injury because they're so heavy. And Have you had a funeral for somebody so obese that there was no there was no carrying the casket. It was going to be wheeled. It just wasn't an option. Um, no, but that's a very realistic thing. <laughs> we have, you know, we <laughs> didn't always used to always used to be a thing, but nowadays there's definitely a lot of funerals where you have to order oversized caskets. Um, cause the average funeral casket or the average casket has a, a certain width interior. And if you, with your arms crossed and your elbows tucked, it's from elbow to elbow. And if you are wider than that, um, we have to get you an oversized casket. And in that case, you know, it's going to be all hands on deck in the funeral home to get that person onto a church truck. And then we're most likely not going to carry it from the coach to the, the, the grave, if that's where they're going, um, you would definitely put them on a some kind of like wheeled device immediately outside of the coach and drag it to the grave. All right. Well, that's weight loss encouragement. I don't want I an oversized casket. I don't want an oversized casket either. It's it, it's akin to having to get a second, a second seat on a plane. Yeah. No, thank you. Oh, and when you have to get an oversized casket, you have to get an oversized vault, which means you have to get two spots like two graves oh my God, sometimes so, so think about that that i have to have two <laughs> holes in the ground you're not there yet i can Holy tell you already shit. just looking at you thanks yet yeah. you're welcome you really prefaced that you're welcome chris you're not so fat that you have to have an oversized casket yet that's sad <laughs> weight, um, weight loss goals yeah right <laughs> um you're seeing families 
at you often they're worst they're lowest they're saddest you're not you're not seeing pete it's like you said it's not a wedding it's the opposite so you're seeing a lot of different family dynamics play out mm-hmm. have you seen have you seen many just out and out fights in funerals not fist fight well if you've seen that please tell me but have do you see a lot of histrionics and that kind of drama play out at wedding or at funerals um it's not as not as common as you would think and i would i know my grandmother's had some so yeah every family dynamic is different usually families are very upfront with the fact that there might be a problem so while it's never been like a fist fight or a fight in front of me i have definitely seen people walk out frustrated leave frustrated um, but I usually see that kind of mediated before they come in and meet with me. Um, they'll just have one person come in and represent the family in that case. Um, I have seen at funerals, um, not fights, but definitely people, people passing out. Um, I've had someone walk out of a, an arrangement that I was holding, um, for funeral arranging and, and start walking into the street to commit suicide um, cause they were so distraught, um, they wanted to get hit by a car. I've seen a lot of things, but I've never seen a, a, a punch thrown. I have had to hire a lot of security for visitations cause people thought there would be a fight breaking out, but I think just having the presence of security there has kind Is of. Is that something that gets, prevented. I assume that's get put, put, uh, thrown on the bill. Oh, we don't just give away security. We have to hire those from the city. So there's off-duty police officers, basically, for any type of event that you have that you can call the city and they'll they'll let the police officers know. And usually, I think it was like fifty dollars an hour. And sounds about right. I would say the funeral home is going to tack on something to that, just to you know the cost for doing the service of getting them. Um, but I've had families just hire them themselves. So, oh wow! Yeah. Have you, the reason I ask, I, I was thinking my, my grandmother's funeral, there were kind of two warring factions. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the most part, they behaved themselves during the ceremony, but the, the, everything kind of boiled over once grandma was in the hearse mm-hmm. and there were fights about this thing's not leaving until X, Y, and Z are figured out. Yeah. She's getting buried with her wedding ring. She's not getting buried with her wedding ring. Uh, and every- fighting over jewelry is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's touchy. Yeah. And so everybody sat in their cars for a good 45 minutes while we had to have this all hashed out. It was just a blast. I, I've definitely heard of stories like that. And it's it's definitely a trope in the funeral industry that there's going to be fighting families. I would see it more so administratively than I would in the actual funeral itself. It'd be, I want this many death certificates. I want this. I want to be the executor. I want the will, that kind of stuff. And that's, that's off my plate, but yeah, that's an estate attorney. That's not something you're dealing with. It gets a little touchy. Yeah. It's definitely not something I'm dealing with, but it gets touchy because they'll argue over who is the rightful next of kin for a death certificate. And that's where I do come in. It's like, you have to prove that you are the son. You know, sometimes they'll have someone come in and say that they are someone that they are, they are not so that they can get their name on the death certificate. I've had people do that as spouses. Um, cause we never asked for, um, 
like a marriage license when we were letting people say they were spouses on a death certificate. We just took their word that they were, you know, who they said they were. Um, but if it got into a big argument, um, there were times where I definitely had to do amendments on death certificates because someone that was next to kin came out of the woodwork and like a lost child or something, a strange kid. Yeah. That's always kind of a concern. Um, is our, is this person who they say they are? They do have to usually, if, if they can't prove themselves, have to sign a document saying that, you know, because it'd be, it'd be things like the niece would come in. Like really the niece is the closest next of kin this person has. There's no children. There's no parents. There's no siblings. Um, that was always kind of weird. So if it was a niece or something pretty far from the individual, I would have them sign a document that said, you know, I've exhausted any effort to find anyone closer next of kin. And I agree to sign this as the legal next of kin just to kind of see why. Have you ever had to get a lawyer involved in, or say, Hey, you got to come back with your lawyer. Never a lawyer, but you do have to come in with a proof of next of kinship. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Show me, show me the money, the license, marriage license. What is, I'm going to ask a couple, uh, mm-hmm. superlatives, I guess. But have you had funerals where you've you've done the whole ceremony you've ever, and nobody shows up or one person? Because you always read about that on social media, the guy who has a funeral and it's an oh, empty guest book. Oh, the veteran and no one, he had no family. Yeah. Have you ever had funerals where nobody oh. shows up? I have, and those kind of break your heart, you know? Um, like, li- are we talking literally nobody or we're talking like one or two people? Or are we talking nobody? Well, there's there's going to be somebody because someone They're made funeral arrangements. And, yeah. in, in my case, yeah, as, a, as someone that worked at a funeral home, they're contracting with us and obviously there's someone that's paying us to do our service. We don't do them for free. Right. So there would definitely be funerals though, where they plan the family plans. Those are the saddest. It's like the, the next to kin plan something and like 10 or fewer people show up and they told me ahead of time that it'd be like 50 or 60 people. Um, that's always hard and it's such a logistic thing. Like, no one could get out of work or it was just a bad day or arranged or something. And just people that thought they could come wouldn't come. Um, and then you have people that have just very, very small families and didn't have a lot of friends. So I've had funerals with four people, um, funerals with like the daughter, one person. Um, and then I think to, um, I, I sadly, I forget her name, but there was a little girl in Richardson. Maybe you remember her name. She was killed by her dad. Um, Ooh, I don't know. it was a big murder case in Richardson and the parents are both on trial right now, but she passed away. She's three year old and our funeral home, the community, the community, basically kind of like those things you see on social media. Um, the community rallied around her for like a funeral to happen. And so while there was no family there, it was just the community that had seen it on the news. So there's every type of for situations like that. Do you guys ever go pro bono do you ever donate your services absolutely and funeral homes in general if the if the case is high profile if it's extremely sad um it's a high profile like murder or um oftentimes um line of duty deaths things like that the funeral home will will offer most if not all the services free sometimes the cemetery property as well yeah 
I've got to interrupt and apologize to anybody listening for the dog snoring in the background. You're welcome. She's adorable. That's uh, Samantha's Samantha's dog. Mm-hmm. Very cute. Very noisy sleeper. So Her name's Elvira, mistress of the park. Thank you. So, so back to death. <laughs> Elvira's death adjacent. I I guess so. Okay. So we talked a little bit about kind of I. You you said that the the lower turnout funerals are pretty heart wrenching. What's mm-hmm. what's one or two of the funerals that stuck out as the hardest on you, the saddest? I mean, the obvious answer is going to be little kids, but, and that's going to be most funeral directors go to. The thing that makes me the saddest is, and this is selfish, but people that are my age, when I see people that are 30 and they pass away suddenly, um, and they had no previous health issues, um, and I, I have to meet their parent um, or parents. That's the hardest for me because I'm like, I, A, I feel like a jerk because here I am a healthy 30-year-old 30, 30 person that's talking to them and, and trying to help them through the situation. And I'm probably constantly bringing up the fact that I'm you know, young and relate to everything they're talking about, their kids' favorite stuff. Um, like, oh, yeah, I love that too. Let's do that. Let's make that a thing, you know, for the program you know, or whatever. I just kind of feel like I'm kind of shoving in their face. That's something a lot of pregnant funeral directors feel like when they're when there's a deceased baby or something like that. Um, I kind of have that same reaction. But those types of situations, I remember specifically closing the casket on um, a visitation one night. And I won't say what it was because I don't want to be specific in case they ever hear it. But this person, this 30 year old person had an affinity for a pop culture um, series. And we basically decorated the whole room. Even the casket like flower piece was decorated with these like action figures. And it was just like a really fun theme. And this person liked to cosplay like these characters. And, and there was such like a sense of like, um, fun and kind of like remembering this person for their favorite thing. Um, but that kind of pulls on your heartstrings a little bit more than just generic flowers. <laughs> when you get to see that kind of like part of that person's interest and, and see it displayed so heavily, you kind of start feeling connected to them because you maybe you have an affinity for it too. But I I was watching the dad kind of look at this this kid for the last time when we were closing the casket, when I was getting ready to close the casket because the funeral home was closing for the night. And I, I look at the dad and I, I don't always do this, but I asked him if he wanted to help me close the casket. And he like kind of smiled tearfully to me and was like, yeah, I do. And so I, I told him what to do and he, it seemed like he was kind of honored to do it. And that's kind of what I imagined he would he, he would get something out of that experience versus just watching, you know, an employee do it for him. Um, he kind of took that as a, uh, an act of respect for his son. So that's one of those things you do as a funeral director, you kind of take the situation and, and kind of help them have a part of it. But anyway, so we're having this moment and we close the casket 
And I look at him and he's just like smiling at me, like, thanks for letting me do that kind of smile. I'm like, can I, can I hug you? And he's like, yes, please. And then we hug and there's like this nice moment. But, you know, in that moment, I'm just thinking of literally everyone that I love in my life and like imagining my mom or someone that loves me having to do that because here's this third year old person next to me that's deceased. And those always kind of get me. Have you ever cried in a ceremony, in a funeral? Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't when I started. So when I was like a young 20 something and I was doing funerals, it never affected me. Like it could be a two year old, it could be an 80 year old. I would not cry. But then life, you kind of experience life, right? And and I had experienced loss of my own. I experienced relationship loss and death and, and these types of things. And once you kind of experience some of that and you can bring that experience of your own into situations, what usually gets me is it's never the priest talking or the, or the preacher talking. I think those are usually kind of like canned things that don't usually mean anything to me. But when the families get up and do their eulogies or say something like a funny story, but then you hear a a crack in their voice and you know they're about to cry during it that shit gets me because I'm like oh my gosh because then you immediately like flood with thoughts of like what your family would say about you or what you would say about your mother and you just start thinking about that and you just realize that life isn't infinite and that's what gets me those very real kind of raw moments where someone's not structured anymore up there they're just kind of letting themselves feel the emotion and you're like, shit, man, this is real. And that always gets me. So we, we've talked about funerals and, and death for a little over an hour. Mm, I could talk longer. Oh, I know. I want to know, having seen all of the funerals you've seen, mm -hmm. one, has it changed how you want yourself to go? Not go, but how you want your funeral mm -hmm. to be? And then two, how, how did it change and what has it changed to? How you've seen pretty much everything that can be done. You know it can be done. Yeah. What's your dream funeral? Do you have one? I don't know what my, what my wishes used to be when I was younger. I definitely know what they are now and I'll answer your question. But I can tell you as a funeral, someone that's worked in the funeral industry, I want people to take this away, is is funeral directors are there to let you know what is available. They're not there. And if they are, they're assholes. They're not there to push shit on you. They're there to say, here's this casket. That's a thousand dollars. Here's this casket. That's $8,000. Let me tell you the differences. It's like the difference between buying a Toyota and a Lexus. Like maybe they look the same to you, but maybe you know that they're built differently. Right? So just, Keep that in mind and don't just buy the cheapest thing because you think funeral, funeral homes are assholes. Um, usually there's a difference in quality. And that's something I learned and took away from my grandfather's funeral. Prior to being in the industry, I would have said, let's get in the cheapest box because he was a practical man. But after being in the funeral industry and selling urns, I knew that I wanted the cherry wood column looking earn for my grandfather because he was a dignified proud man um so i got him i got him that urn and it was a 500 dollars urn versus a 100 dollars urn that he probably would have picked out for himself so i say all that to say m make decisions for the person not for the cost 
Um, but what do I want? <laughs> I don't have real preferences for my funeral because I'll be dead. So don't really care what happens. I just want people that knew and loved me to to be able to remember me, to be able to grieve in a real way and feel it and commiserate. But I do know that I want to be cremated. Um, as far as our options here in 2019 are available, I want cremation. There are some new things like aquamation where you get cremated by chemical water, basically. And if that becomes a, a cheap, cost-effective thing by the time I die, that'd be cool too. Who knows what'll be around when I die, though. Hopefully that's a long, long time away. But I'd like to have my ashes put into a series, possibly a series of Etch-a-Sketches, because Etch-a-Sketch backgrounds are gray already because they're aluminum powder. I think the gray ashes I would produce would be a really natural fit, um, and it'd be kind of a cool urn that's also kind of see-through. It's, it's really neat, and I know that I want to be in a glass front niche. Um, so that you can see the edge of sketch behind the glass. Um, basically, there's like, several types of niches, but usually they're they're like mailbox looking things with there's big walls with different compartments. Um, and some have glass on the front, and some have marble on the front or bronze or whatever. But I want one that you can see through because when you can do that, you can put like pictures and mementos, and then you can see my cool edge of sketch urn. Maybe throw some glitter in with the ashes. I haven't, I haven't decided. Well, that segues perfectly <laughs> out of my my questions on funerals and death mm-hmm. and into your I'm going to call it your your most prolific hobby. Mm. Um as long as I've known you, you've been what I've called an etch-a-sketch savant. Mhm. Um That's fair. Samantha is a legitimate etch-a-sketch artist as long as I've known her. You name it, she can pretty much draw it on one of those little 1950s toy Etch-a-Sketch. It's 1960, Chris. It's 59th birthday. It was yesterday, July 12th, 2019. Excuse me. Samantha's got a real talent for it. Um, when I mm-hmm. when I knew Samantha years ago, you would be bored at work and you would text me, hey, I'm bored, what should I Etch-a-Sketch? And I would inevitably be distracted or in class or whatever and flippantly give you some asshole answer and i remember once when you texted me chris i'm bored what should i etch i don't know i replied back i don't know teddy roosevelt and i put my phone away and not but i I swear it wasn't 20 or 30 minutes later you texted me a fucking (laughs) portrait of teddy roosevelt that was done on an Mm etch-a-sketch so we're gonna i'm gonna wrap this podcast up with some etch-a-sketch questions love it Death and Etch-a-Sketches totally go together. Sure. Because I would rather kill myself than try to draw something competent on an Etch-a-Sketch. Oh my gosh, that wasn't my metaphor, but okay. Well, it's mine. Um, mm-hmm. First up, how did podcast. you... Yeah, thank you. <laughs> how did you... How did you dis, dis, discover you had a talent for this? So I don't know that all of us that are good at this, good at drawing on the the classic red drawing toy, I don't think most of us knew that this was like a, a surprising feat. So when I picked one up, I picked up a pocket-sized Etch-a-Sketch on a vacation. 
I drew the building that we had seen that day. It turned out well. I enjoyed it. Um, How old were you? 13, approximately. So I showed it to my family, my mother and my aunt, and they they were like, wow, how did you do that? (laughs) It's like, it was easy. I just turned the knobs, right? And so I started drawing things I had seen around the the hotel room, and I was good. Like, I was just good. And so you didn't even really practice? You just picked it up and naturally? No practice whatsoever. I just picked it up and did it. Fuck you. I mean, I didn't know it was a thing, right? So, <laughs> but yeah, I just started drawing everything I could see, and I was like, wow, I'm, I'm good at this. People are telling me it's like a special thing. I'm going to fucking roll with this because I was... I feel like it's more impressive than those assholes who can like whip out a Rubik's Cube and get it done because at least that's a pattern. You're just free form drawing on the world's hardest drawing device. Yeah. I mean, people compare it to the, definitely compare it to the Rubik's Cube or to people that can manipulate a slinky or yo-yo really well. Fuck that. Um, It's harder. I compare it more to people that are really good at Lego sculpting, but that's just me. The... The mechanics of it are actually pretty fascinating. And when I think about it in terms of art that I've been good at historically with like painting or drawing on paper, it's such a different concept that people always say, oh, are you really good at art? And I'm like, well, I'm not bad at it, but I'm not great at it. Like this is just such a totally different thing than being able to draw on paper or draw on, draw on um, or paint. Um, having those skills helps you just because you are drawing something, you're trying to render something lifelike, but the actual skill it takes to turn the knobs and create something using just cause the mechanics of it are just a X and Y axis controlled by two knobs. You have horizontal, you have vertical. So to, to n- not even think about what your hands are doing and let them kind of just work on your behalf it's like riding a bike you're not thinking about pedaling you're just doing it um it's it's really kind of a bizarre thing because i'll i'll just be i remember specifically having this aha moment when i was doing a portrait of garfield one day like just a stupid cartoon drawing of garfield the cat and i got done with it and i was like holy shit that's one when you look back at it that's a one line because you don't ever break the line on a Net-a-Sketch. Just continuously using one line, tracing over itself. Like, holy shit, how did my mind just do that? And I don't even know how I did it. It's just kind of like highway hypnosis. You just start and then you you end and you didn't crash and die. And I don't know how to explain it. It's hard to teach it because it's controlling. It's motor control that is not normal or... or. And I'm garbage even at normal motor controls. So. <laughs> well... It's a whole different story, but yeah, it's just a really motor control, weird spatial awareness. Cause you have this very small, finite amount of space you can draw on and you're just manipulating this, these two knobs to create something. And I've seen people, you know, beyond myself, create the most amazing masterpieces on these things that people could never recreate on paper. And I'm going to interrupt you because I have one of your Etch-A-Sketch pieces you did a ugk for me it's hmm. proudly displayed in my living room it does. the first question i get and i know you get it all the time is okay how but do how you do you preserve it, preserve it? <laughs> i know mine you drilled out the back and basically drained out all of the magnetic 
See, filler. that's your first problem. So people don't know how the Etch Sketch works. And that's the whole like mystery and kind of air, uh, weird air surrounding it, right? Is everyone thinks it's a magnet and you just demagnetize it or some shit. And that's fucking learn how it works, guys. You So it's a plastic case filled with aluminum powder. And the aluminum powder is extremely sticky. So what's happening is you have a piece of glass that's coated with something sticky. So, so you're scraping it off and it just falls back into the cavity below. So the cavity gets filled with aluminum powder even more so. And when you turn it over, you're recoding the screen. It's just, it's just sticky. Um, when you when you do want to take so, it apart, so so uh-huh. so a blank etch a sketch screen is actually a coded screen. Yeah, you're seeing negative space when you're drawing. Okay, you're seeing black background when you're drawing. Um, so yeah, so in order to make it to where it won't erase, you need to not be able to recoat. So you do have to either drill and drain is a method where you just drill in the back like you were saying and kind of shake out all the aluminum powder which is tedious, very messy, and not always as effective um, because you are it's a really large surface area when you're talking about this tiny, fine, sticky dust that you're trying to get out of it. So you're most likely not going to get all the sticky dust out every time. And then you have the, the issue of the knobs working and just scraping off more, right? So you need to either hot glue the knobs down or make them non-functional some other way. The way that I like and is tried and true now is to saw around the entire edge from the black and red kind of connection on the bottom of the Etch-a-Sketch, take off the red frame, take off the glass, and then shop back or wash out all of the powder inside so it's completely devoid of the aluminum powder inside. And, and then you cut the strings that operate the stylus so that the knobs no longer function. And then you glue the whole shit back together and most likely take five to 10 years off of your life for inhaling aluminum powder. Lovely. Yeah. So you you started to make it, it's it's not your career, or we would be talking about etch sketches for an hour and not funerals. Well, funeral directing's not my career either, but here we are. Whatever. <laughs> No longer. Your actual career, not that interesting. I'm not making a podcast on that. Digital marketing is not fascinating to you? No. That's fair. Um, or anybody else. That's for me either. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know a friend of mine worked your job, and I think he lasted a whopping three months at it. I like it. But anyway. Anyway. That's 45 seconds more digital marketing talk than I wanted. So... <laughs> You, you've started to do some etch-a-sketch-for-hire work. You've done commission pieces. Um, as I understand it, you've even sold some at Jerry Jones's Jerry World up in Frisco, Texas, their practice facility. Is that right? That actually didn't happen. Oh, it never when it I, came to fruition? No, that would be super dope, right? They, they basically approached me and said, we're doing this store for high-end um, pieces and we want to, to you to do your custom match sketches just as kind of a fun thing. And I said, sure, it's going to be, you know, X amount of dollars per etch-a-sketch. And because I knew that, 
And A, so they had read about me in an article. And I said at the time that my extra sketches were $150. And when they approached me, they're like, okay, we'll pay you $150 per. And I was like, well, first of all, that's a one-year-old article. Second of all, supply and demand. If you're going to have me start to do high dollar commissions for high dollar customers and it's going to be on a very steady basis because you're a retail store I don't have the bandwidth for that I'm not a wholesale dealer like I'm not giving you a wholesale price on these um, this is going to be customer and it's going to be expensive and basically we didn't come to a negotiation on the price how um, much if how much would they have what price would have gotten you in there if they had said it you have would you have said yes to what they were wanting was, I think, specific types of things like different Dallas landmarks drawn, but also offering what I normally offer, which is pet portraits or to do people's colleges or other buildings or whatever, um, probably $300 per because it's, it's a big commitment, especially my time is worth a lot, you know. What's the longest you've spent on a single Etch-a-Sketch project? Four hours. That's it. Yeah, and that was a really complicated one. That's I did the Austin postcard mural from... And you got it done in four hours. Yeah, um, that was kind of my Etch-a-Sketch resurgence, right? So I went to Austin. I was at a coffee shop with a very creative friend. We spent the weekend, just had girl time. And that was the first time I had picked up an Etch-a-Sketch in forever. And... I, she was painting. I was, I was drawing on the edge of sketch and I drew that, whipped it out in about four hours total between our, our days there at this coffee shop. And it kind of reinvigorated my love for the edge of sketch and drawing on it and people's fascination with seeing it done. Unfortunately, I was foolish and I, t I took a good picture of it, but I left it for my Airbnb hostess and I wish I would have kept it because it's still my favorite one that I've done. What? What's the average time you it takes you for a full size, not the pocket size, but the full size that you sketch? What's an, your average to get something done? Not counting the disassembly and preservation, just Oof. just getting the, the art done. The disassembly and preservation is the bitch. Like if I could just draw on the etch sketch, I would take commissions all day long. But it's the disassembly and the preservation that takes the longest and is the most difficult. To answer your question, though. I would say actual start to finish full time on the toy itself, probably an hour to two hours if I'm doing a really hairy dog or something that requires a lot of shading. Um, I say, I, I kind of specified that it was on the toy itself because if it's a dog or if it's someone's like, if it's something organic looking and it's not a building, I usually will do a couple of sketches on paper first. And I don't usually include that in my time because people only care about the time you spend on the toy. That's all I care about. Yeah. What, other than the Austin postcard, what are some of your most, I don't want to call them notable, but your most memorable ones? Because I want the, I, the, the problem discussing Etch-A-Sketch with you, and you and I talked about this, is... It's a visual pe media. Yeah, people listening they they hear oh okay she drew a dog and they're thinking a basic ass dog they're not <laughs> realizing that we're talking i don't want to say photorealistic but a step below photorealistic yeah. Yeah, drawings of etch-a-sketch we're talking that level of detail and i know that's hard for the listener to hear and fully grasp but yeah check out my instagram i'll plug it for sure yeah we'll, we'll get all it, that but... in at the end 
But um, dogs are my favorite just because the dogs have such personality. And when you when you fill in their eyes, which is always the last thing I finish, um, it just comes to life. So I love my dog portraits. I love, love, love doing cartoons because they're so fun, so pop culture friendly. Like I think the Etch-A-Sketch just lends itself to, to fun childhood nostalgic type of things. I think they just go perfectly hand in hand. Um, they're also extremely easy to draw. Um, they're designed to be easy to draw because you're talking animation. But the Garfield I mentioned earlier, I love. Um, I love, I, I did a big series of Dallas things because um, I did that Austin postcard and I was like, shit, I, I live in Dallas. I want to rep my city, right? So I've done the the Ferris wheel at um, uh, State Fair of Texas. I've done Big Tex. I've done Fletcher's Corny Dogs. I've done the Perot Museum. And what's lovely is I actually sold the Perot Museum one to someone that was giving it as a gift to the president of the Perot Museum. So that was cool. Um, I've done the South Side on the South Side building um, logo, just a lot of big Dallas landmarks. And I love those just because they mean so much to me from being in Dallas forever. Um, one of my favorites and actually the only preserved piece that I have of my own that I've kept is this. And I think there's this really cool juxtaposition here. It's a motel sign that I grew up driving by because my mom worked in Oak Cliff and we lived in Mesquite. And these are just kind of opposing sides of the metro or the, of Dallas um, city. And so you have to do a kind of a long drive to get from one to the other. And you always pass this kind of seedy motel that says the sign said couples, $19. And I just always thought that was like so like interesting and it was like kind of naughty and neat. So that was one of the first things I drew and preserved was this hotel sign that says like cable HBO, $19 couples. And I have that in my bedroom because I just think it's kind of like naughty. And I think it's kind of cool how I, you know, it's on a toy that is so nostalgic and like kid uh, is childish, but here's this like kind of naughty thing. It kind of goes in with the, the fact that the first thing everyone wants you to draw on the Etch-A-Sketch is boobs or a penis. Um, and I both, I do both of those really well, by the way. Do you, have you had any X-rated or risque requests commissions commissions no no one's paid me to draw boobs or a penis i just do those for fun lovely <laughs> i mean i think there's a, a bart simpson thing where he's like i just sketch all i can do on i just sketch just square boobs it might be homer simpson i don't know bart might be a little young to say things like that but there's a simpsons thing where they say that all you can do on the just sketch is draw square boobs so i made it a point to make sure i can draw i drew some some nice perky round boobs I got a chance. I don't know why my voice got sexy to say that, but you're welcome. Thanks. Now everybody's <laughs> gonna look at an etch sketch and get a boner. Uh, that's my that's my only goal is to give people boners by looking at etch sketches. Great. <laughs> um, what's the most expensive etch sketch commission you've done? Expensive? You mean as far as like what I charged for it? Yeah, the the most you've gotten doing it. Oh, um, probably like $400. I don't charge a lot. There, there are people that do this for a living, like a couple of friends of mine that, that do nothing but etch-a-sketch art for, for a living. 
And I, I know they charge in the thousands. I know people have gotten 6,000, 7,000 for, for Etch-a-Sketches. Is the quality of their $6,000 Etch-a-Sketch much better than the one you do for 400? of a rude question no fuck that no i think what what the difference is i mean i think they are very 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 talented and they they have different style than i do um but they they put their whole heart and soul and life into it and i just do this as a kind of a hobby so i think the the perceived value is is higher or, or they expect more for what they're worth because they you know that you have to factor in all the social media you have to factor in all the kind of business that they're doing all the kind of promotion that they're doing everything you know the overhead of running a business they they effectively treat their etch-a-sketch as work as a business and uh, as they should they should get a good value for it if people want to find your etch-a-sketching or reach out and get a samantha etch-a-sketch themselves how do they find you uh, you know, on my on online, my name is Samantha G. Watt, and if you Google that, everything kind of comes up. But my actual Instagram handle, where I am most up to date on things, is at Ellie Bear Productions. It's E L L I E B E A R, and I try to keep up with it, sort of. I'm, like I said, mine is more of a hobby. I do it because I'm good at it, and people will get a kick out of it. I don't do it as my life's work. But I do try to keep up with it so it stays, I, I stay good at it. Um, but that's where I keep all my Etch-a-Sketches when I post them. Would you say you're one of the 10 best Etch-a-Sketchers on the planet? Top 20. I would, I, you know, if it was 10, I'd, I'd probably be number 10. So humble. I mean, there's not a lot of us to choose from. <laughs> well, Samantha, thank you for, for sitting down and talking about Death and Etch-a-Sketches with me. I know. I like to keep it quirky. You're welcome. Um, I, I recommend you, anybody listening to this, check her out on social media. Look at the crazy, insane shit she cranks out in an hour or two on a fucking out to sketch. It's, it's always blown my mind, so I'm glad we got to talk a little, talk about it a little bit. Thank you. I'd also like to say that if anyone has any questions about, you know, if you're going through funeral arrangements, someone you love has passed away, I'm... You know, I'm happy to, to discuss funeral directing from a non-biased standpoint and, and help you make good decisions. Awesome. Well, keep that in mind if someone you love passes away. Uh, Samantha, thanks for sitting down. This has been another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at It Never Hurts to Ask. You can email me with guest suggestions or questions at It Never Hurts to Ask Pod at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter, which one of these days I will actually start to update at Podcast Chris. And this has been another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. Thanks for listening. Deuces. Deuces.